Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is artist and Native American cultural educator, Steve Tamayo. In the show, Tamayo talks about being raised within a Mexican cultural heritage, deprived of his stolen cultural identity as a Native American, and how, as he matured, he not only sought out his Native American culture through language and art, but has become a respected culture bearer for his and other Native peoples. I started working with the elders, our cultural bearers, our language instructors, the practitioners of our ceremonies, of our rituals. I finally, finally found a home. Steve Tamayo is a traditional Sichangu Lakota artist whose family originates from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. Tamayo studied the traditional arts of the Umaha people under Howard Wolf and earned his BFA from Sinte Gleshka University in 2011, where he developed and taught the traditional arts program. After more than 30 years of study and practice as an artist and educator, he began consulting educational institutions and other organizations on the history, culture, and traditions of the Plains Indians, including being a regular consultant to the curatorial and conservation staff at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. He is a past Nebraska Governor's Heritage Art Award recipient, an honor bestowed for his contributions in the arts and Native American culture, and is the founder of the Bluebird Cultural Initiative. Steve Tamayo, welcome to Lives. Thank you very much. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about your childhood? What stands out? What memories do you have? So I was born and raised in uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa. And so growing up, you know, we had close ties to understanding our existence as Mexicanos because of my father and my familia, of the Tamayo uh, familia. So my dad's name is Fortunato. Fortunato was a migrant worker who worked the fields from Texas all the way to Canada. And so understanding that, you know, one thing about each and every one of us is, you know, we were up before the sun rose. We always had a task every day. And so being of Mexican descent, you know, something that was always incorporated into our way of life was uh, understanding that work ethic. Once again, in the Mexican culture, so I grew up learning how to butcher in my backyard in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And so it was a task that, you know, was not common. And so I would go to school and people would be like, you know, the students and my friends would be like, what'd you do? I said, oh, we got to butcher a hog in my backyard over at my deals. And they're like, what? Because, you know, that was just uncommon. If you wanted meat, you would just go to the grocery store. And so for us, we butchered our own because that's just the way of life for us. We grew up in a very traditional manner. And so when I say that, you know, people are like, oh, you know, being identified as an indigenous person of this land, when I talk about being raised in a traditional manner, I speak highly of my grandmother who, in our language, as Mexicanos once again, she was actually a cuandera, who was a healer of the people with plants and ointments and salves that she created. You know, one thing about my grandparents is, you know, they crossed the river 
long ago and never received their papers of citizenship of the United States. They crossed that river a long time ago before, you know, these boundaries were actually created. And so that's how important that is, is, you know, the Mexican people have always been a part of the United States. And you can see that the evidence of that by the rivers and by the states and all kinds of evidence, you know, that exists still today. Once again, you know, we grew up as Mexicanos and then growing up, that's when my mother started telling me stories of being indigenous. And so I found that very fascinating. And so I wanted to learn as much as possible. But that story was uh, very, very short. And the reason why is, you know, when my mom was a little over four years old, the United States government took her, just like they took 100,000 of our indigenous little ones. And so understanding that, you know, way back in 1890, the United States government actually funded the boarding school system, which was reinforced and backed by the United States military. And so once again, you know, they took tens of thousands of our little ones. And the sad thing is all of the records have been destroyed. So we seriously don't know how many kids were stolen we don't know how many kids perished in the boarding schools. And so we don't know, you know, where a lot of these children uh, ended up at, actually. And so this began in 1890, and it didn't stop until 1972. Another thing that most people don't understand yet, after 1890, they uh, outlawed our way of life. And so in doing so, we weren't allowed to openly pray or conduct our rituals or ceremonies of rites of passage until 1978 when they finally passed the Native American Religious Freedom Act. When you look back, Steve, on your childhood, now you have this distance, but at the time, do you see that you were raised in an environment where your father's side of the family carried that Mexican indigenous cultural context into your upbringing? Do you see an absence of your Native American indigenous stories in your youth? Is that what spurred you to understand that? You know, growing up, I didn't understand the dynamics. Those were never explained to me. As I think back and I look back at, our, at my, uh, my familia on my father's side, you know, I have uh, well over 400 plus cousins. My family is huge. Now that I look back, you know, when I was much older, I look back at uh, the dynamics of my mother's side. And, you know, there was many siblings, my aunts and uncles. But the, the big difference is my uncles and some of my aunts decided not to have children because they didn't want their children to be stolen like they were stolen. People don't understand um, the hardships that our little ones endured for almost 100 years. And so the beatings, you know, um, continued for, for generations. And so we talk about historical trauma. We talk about generational trauma. 
and how it's affected, you know, a whole entire ethnic group of little ones. Because one thing that was stolen from them is understanding and having compassion and understanding, you know, the importance of that kinship of that family. You know, the government created the boarding school systems to um, have a true impact and to ruin and, and dissolve, you know, true identity of all of our indigenous relatives. And so I'm a Lakota speaker by choice because, you know, I grew up in Council Bluffs. I grew up with the uh, Mexican language within the culture, within our beautiful, you know, cadidos, our rancheras, you know, our cumbia, all of our songs. But then I wanted to learn more about my mother's side. And she didn't have much information to share because once again, she was a victim of the atrocities committed against the indigenous people. Before I ask you to tell me about that journey, because you've been journeying with culture, the arts for decades now, there is that period of time where you left high school and you joined the 101st Airborne. What was motivating you to do that and what did you take away from that experience? You know, one thing about all indigenous people is we have always been warriors. We have always stood up for our existence because we had to. One thing about all Native American people is, you know, we were fighting for this country when we weren't even citizens of our own country. We weren't even considered citizens of our own land until 1925. Prior to that, we have always partnered up with one side or the other in every major conflict that has occurred on this land. And so long ago, you know, we defended our territorial boundaries because of firewood, because of wild game and water. When I graduated during this time, I kept asking my mom about all kinds of things. And once again, the, the culture was stolen from my mother. After I made my ways out, you know, of course, I wanted to join the United States military because all indigenous people who join the military, they want to maintain that warrior status amongst the people. And so when I came home from basic training, I did my uh, basic training down at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And so this is where I went for my basic training and I went to for my AIT schooling. And so, you know, I was an 11B. I was uh, an infantry soldier. We went back to Fort Campbell because that was my permanent base. And so I became part of that 101st Airborne Division. And so right away, you know, we took off and we went back to Fort Benning, went back to jump school. And then we came back and then they sent us to another school called Air Assault School. And so that's when I became the fire team chief leader out of a Black Hawk helicopter in which we used to repel, you know, from four to, to 800 feet up in the air, which I just found fascinating because I thought I was invincible and I was 18 years old. When I came home, my mom set up a very special ceremony. And this is when I received my spirit name. This is when I received my first feather. And so from that time on, you know, I, I knew my position amongst the people as a Lakota warrior. When you left the army, you made a 
choice deliberately to learn about this cultural heritage? Why did you make that choice and, and what did you do? Well, that's, that's interesting because when I made it home, there was a bunch of veterans here. A VFW post 11355 who actually picked me up and they took me to Macy. And so for those of you who don't know, Macy is like the capital of the Umaha people and their reservation. And so they took me to Macy and they inducted me into a warrior society of the Kiowa people that was adopted by our Umaha relatives. And so this is the Taipei Gourd Dance Society. And so I became a gourd dancer, once again, of the Umaha people, understanding the importance of a Kiowa a warrior society that was brought here. And so from that time on, you know, um, being a veteran, carrying these feathers, receiving my spirit name, I became part of this warrior society once again. And I found this old veteran by the name of Howard Wolf, who was with the 82nd Airborne Division, who dropped into World War II as a demolition expert. This guy was wicked. When I started to really visit and talk and interact with him, I learned that he was a dressmaker because of his daughters. He was a traditional artist, which totally fascinated me because once again, you know, my mom's identity as a Native American, as an indigenous Wian woman was stolen from her. And so when I met this little grandpa, you know, I, I, I kind of went under his wing and he started to teach me and explain all kinds of stuff. And so I hung out with Howard for about a decade. And then that's when I took off to the Rosebud Reservation because I wanted to learn my own language because Howard was a member of the Umaha tribal nation here of Nebraska, of Nebadaska. And so I wanted to learn the Lakota language because that's who I am. And so that's when I moved to Rosebud. And my goal moving to Rosebud, South Dakota, was to learn the Lakota language first and foremost. I wanted to learn the language that was stolen from my mom and her identity and our existence as Lakotas first and foremost. That's what led me to Mission South Dakota. That's when, you know, I signed up for college. I signed up at a university on my reservation land called Sinteglashka Wa'uspe Owaiwaki. And this is Spotatel University. And so the most important thing about Spotatel University is it is the first fully four-year accredited university on reservation land in the United States, which occurred in the 19, later part of 1970s. And so I was just like, oh my gosh, you know? And the first lesson, the first task that was given to us was to write a 500 word essay. My language instructor at that time was Sandra Black Crow. And so I explained who I was, who my family was, where I came from, and she just looked at me and she's like, you're my nephew. I said, what? And she started telling me about her life, about her experiences. 
And so she married one of my relatives from, we call it Ta'asampe Oyonke, Milk's Camp, which is the small community in which my mom was born and raised and unfortunately had to run away from. And so once again, you know, in the beginning of this discussion, I talked about, you know, my mom being stolen when she was four. When she was 15, she was released from the boarding school system. And so that's when she came home to find her family had been torn apart. There was another policy carried out way back in the 1940s, 1950s, called the Relocation Act. It allowed all of our indigenous relatives on all reservations a one-way ticket off of the reservation. That way, they weren't dependent on the government anymore. They were gifted a one-way ticket because they didn't want our Native people to go back to the reservations. And so we had a whole generation for almost 100 years making their ways back to the reservations. But the sad thing is they didn't speak their own language anymore. So they were outsiders amongst their own people. And so this adds to the complexity once again. They weren't accepted on their own lands because they didn't understand who they were because their identity was stolen and beaten out of them. They took that one-way ticket, went to the mainstream, and they weren't accepted there either. And so think of the hardships that, you know, this brought on for many generations because they weren't accepted in any world that they existed in. My mom found peace when she met my dad because she picked up this new identity as a Mexicano because she changed her last name to Tamayo. And so from that time on, you know, she kind of hid us in Council Bluffs, Iowa, because she didn't want the United States government to find out that we were Native Americans, because when we were born, we were still eligible to be stolen, to be taken away from her. This policy, this way of being of of taking the children finally stopped in 1972, but I was born in 1966. And so that's why we hid. That was never explained to me, ever. Later on in life, I just figured it out. You talked about going to Sinte Gleshka. What happened in that time in terms of you discovering that part of who you are and how did being an artist emerge? So once again, you know, prior to moving to Rosebud, you know, that's when I found this little grandpa, Howard Wolf. And so under his guidance, you know, under his explanation of explaining the paraphernalia that exists with each warrior society, once again, I was just fascinated. And so when I wrote that essay for my first language instructor, Sandra, my Tui, my auntie Sandra, she just looked at me and she her jaw dropped. She was just like, you know how to make the pesha. The pesha in my language is a head roach. It's headgear made out of porcupine guard hair and the deer tail. I've been researching um, items of adornment of very specific paraphernalia of warrior societies. And so I was researching that for 10 years before I moved to Rosebud Reservation. I went there to learn the language because there was no Lakota language speakers here in the Omaha area. So I was just like, well, I'll just go home. 
once again, my teacher, my instructor, my auntie would just floored. She was just like, you need to teach here at Sente Gleska. And I'm like, this is my first semester at college. I was like, how can I teach? She's like, we'll teach you how to teach. And so they taught me for well over a year. I started to learn the language by not classroom. I immersed myself into the culture specific of ceremonies, of rituals. All of my, my ways of being were introduced to me in a very specific way of life. And then I started working with the elders, with the instructors at Santa Gleska, uh, once again, Spotatel University, Lakota Studies Department. And that's when, I don't know, I was, I was just totally blown away because I got to meet Lexi Albert Whitehat Sr., who wrote Reading and Writing, the Lakota book, a uh, language book. Then I got to meet Dwayne Hollow Hornbear, Victor Duville, Stanley Redbird, Francis Cutt. And then I met Dewey, Noella, Spotted Tail, Sandra Blackcrow, Ione Quigley, Tina Martinez, uh, Black Spotted Calf. This was definitely the who's who of Sichongu country because they were our cultural bearers, our language instructors, the practitioners of our ceremonies, of our rituals. They were Sundance leaders of the men and of the women. And then the complexities of this way of life were introduced to me, and I finally, finally found a home where I stayed for 15 years. And so under their guidance, under their direction of explaining First and foremost, our beautiful Lakota language. They taught me how to teach. They taught me the history. One thing about our art is it's extremely representational. It has a very specific reason and a purpose for its being. We are storytellers of design. And so today, you know, I uh, specialize I never say that I'm an expert of anything. I specialize in very specific Lakota Plains symbology, numerology, and color concept. And so when I look at designs, I'm a storyteller. I'm an orator of the symbols of the designs. Through art, once again, it's representational of our existence, of what's happened to the people. Our art form, you know, to add to the complexity is, is very gender specific. It's very age specific. We have very specific rites of passage that's incorporated into our art form. And so, you know, as a traditional artist, I've been working and perfecting my own art form for decades. And I am one of uh, the 50 recipients of last year's Creative Capital Grant, which there are only 50 recipients in the whole entire nation that received this specific grant. But my project that I wanted to focus and showcase was the 13 buffalo robes of the Lakota and how specific gender-wise they are. You talked about the artistic expressions that you work with. And in this particular case, you're talking about buffalo hides. Could you share more about what that particular project is and what you're doing with it? 
you know, as a traditional artist today, as an educator, as a cultural specialist, I incorporate math, science, and art and history. And so as a cultural specialist, this allows me to openly go into any classroom and teach our mainstream instructors today. And so when I teach about our buffalo robes, I teach indigenous science of removing the meat, the fat, the epidermis, and the membrane. I open and stretch those collagen fibers to the max on my frames today. I incorporate a very specific uh, solution that I create with brains, fat, and water. Because of the acids, the enzymes inside the, the brains, this is what helps break down the molecular structure of that hide of that skin because I'm opening the pores and then I apply my brain fat and water solution into that hide and then I loosen it up on my frame and my brain solution is encased inside of that hide. It's fascinating. And so once again, you know, growing up in Council Bluffs, Iowa, we didn't have many, very many buffaloes running around. So when I moved to my reservation and I found thousands of buffalo because of the university, this is the only meat that we have accessible to us. And this is what all of our students at our university eats still today. And so all of our hamburgers and sloppy joes and you name it, it's all buffalo. And so we have been harvesting and collecting and saving the hides and we have been turning it into our canvases of the plains. That's what our buffalo hides are. And so to add to the complexity of this art form, you know, I go out and I harvest and create my own natural paint pigments. Understanding that I create and make my own paint vegetable dyes. And so what is the mordant? And so when I talk about the mordant, you know, there are some people out there who actually still dye Easter eggs. When they dye the Easter eggs during that specific time, the mordant is the vinegar that they're adding to the dye, which allows and helps the dye to adhere to that shell. That is the importance of the mordant. I make my own natural hide glue. And so everything besides the meat, the fat, and the bones is what I cook up. I cook up the membranes, the epidermis. I cook up whatever skin and hooves and everything like that. Um, I make my own glue, and then I mix my paint pigments with that hide glue, which allows it to adhere to that um, skin, to the flesh side specific. And so all of our robes, they still have the hair on. And so one of my robes that I'm going to paint for this creative capital grant is going to be that old traditional manner of natural paint pigments with my hide glue. And you mentioned that there are 13 different types that you're representing. What is the story or the narrative of those and, and how, how are they distinguished one from the other? Our art form um, will include the rites of passage of our ages. And so we have a little girl's robe. We have a teenager's robe. We have a married woman's robe. We have a little grandma robe. And so when you look at these designs, you know, just through our designs and once again, the symbology in which we incorporate, it is very age specific. It is very gender specific. 
We are storytellers of exploits and deeds carried out of hunts, raids, and war because we are still at war. We are still hunting. And so this still exists. But I choose to tell on one of my robes the true story of one of our leaders. When you read into the history books, you'll find this word that identifies our chiefs. That word doesn't exist amongst the people. That word was created by the United States government because they wanted one person to speak on behalf of all of the people of that specific nation. And that is not how we are. Our governance is based on committees, on a group of people of many voices to decide to sit down and explain what is the best movement for the people first and foremost. And so our committees are, we call it omnichiai. These are our elders of grandmas, of grandpas, the ones who have experienced a lot of the hardships. And so the ones that are more um, understanding of consequences for our actions. And so they were the ones who made the decisions for the people, and then they voted. And that's how our governance has always been. But the United States government once again wanted one person to explain and speak on behalf, and we weren't that way. But one of our leaders, we call him Itkacha. Itkacha is a leader, but he was actually Wakanwe uh, Chashaki. He was actually one of our spiritual people, and his name was Sitting Bull. And so I'm going to paint the exploits and deeds of Sitting Bull because when I'm done painting all 13 robes, I'm going to take them to a very special school that's being created on the Standing Rock Reservation of South Dakota because Sitting Bull comes from the people of the Hunkpapa. We were gathering to stop um, the No Dapple Dakota Access Pipeline. As an educator, you know, I took off into this encampment and little did I know that that would be a huge part of my way of life because I went there just to help protest. I went there to help the encampment first and foremost. Little did I know that there was a school actually that was created there to take care of the kids within the, the encampment. And so this school was actually started by Elena Eagleshield. The elders in that community sought out Elena because of her educational background. And as of today, Elena is finishing up her PhD in Seattle, Washington. And so she started a school. The first thing she did was she gave the power of the voice of our students, of the next generation, the opportunity to name that school. Up there, there's a lot of people who speak the Lakota language still today. And so all of the kids who were in that school at that time, they decided to name the school Mini Wichoni Nakichizi Owaiowa. They named the school in the Lakota language the Defenders of the Water School. And so my creative capital grant, the robes that I paint, are going to line the hallways of the Miniwichoni School on the Standing Rock Reservation. Your culture and its preservation and expression is an essential part of 
who you have become. And so you founded the Bluebird Cultural Initiative. And I wonder if you might share a little bit more about you know, why you founded it and, and, and what you're hoping it can achieve. You know, this discussion started with my childhood of how I reclaimed my own identity and how I was introduced into this way of life as a traditional artist by this little grandpa, Howard, who actually became my brother because he adopted me as his brother. And then I moved to the Rosebud Reservation where I found my Tui and my Auntie Sandra and Lake She Albert White Hat Sr. From there, I took off to the Mini Wichoni School to become an art teacher there. It was during this time that we seen the importance of creating a nonprofit organization because, you know, by this time, I had a lot of people who understood my mission in life and who wanted to help and support my mission. And so I looked back and I was thinking about my mom and the hardships that she endured. And I decided to name my nonprofit organization Bluebird Cultural Initiative. And so all of the funding that was coming through during that time of that protest at Standing Rock, I wanted to filter the funding and and ways of means to gather funds to help this school on the Standing Rock Reservation in the lands of the Hunkpapa once again. And so this is why we created Bluebird Cultural Initiative. And so I'm in my seventh year with my nonprofit now. And so my daughter, Nicole Benegas, actually took over my nonprofit organization because I'm an artisan. I'm not a businessman. And so understanding that she has the mindset of finding and filling out the specific grants that we need for cultural revitalization. And so once again, you know, I was like, let's name this Bluebird. And the reason why is because of my grandpa, who I never got to meet. His name was Zingtala Tho. And so my mom, you know, after all of the hardships that she endured as a, as a child of having her childhood stolen from her, she always talked about her grandpa, about her dad, my grandpa, about him singing on the porch. And so one thing about, you know, that correlation that exists with his name is, you know, at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, this is when our bird nation relatives come and visit and what they bring to us is the harmony the melody of the natural world and so she talks about my grandpa and his voice and his way of being of singing on that porch and so I often wonder if this is why they named him bluebird because of his sichun, his gift to share his voice with the people And so he was a Lakota speaker and singer. And so she always talked about his melodies later on in life, how beautiful his voice was. How much of the work you do, what you feel is your gift, what you're called to do, is about preserving and presenting the culture? And how much of it is actually, um, maybe the word isn't modernized, but accepting that you yourself have a rich cultural heritage a rich set of experiences and the world around you is a 
is a different world that is also informing your traditional heritage and ways of being. I'm curious about the preservation as well as the updating or the evolution of your culture. The best thing about Bluebird Cultural Initiative today is I'm, I'm not the only teacher because I raised my kids. And, you know, thinking back a long time ago, I really got into this way of life just because I was fascinated. And how can I incorporate it into my ways of being? And so I have some amazing, beautiful daughters who have picked this way of life up. My oldest baby is Nicole. Nikki is actually the one who is the executive director of Bluebird Cultural Initiative. And so every week we have created very specific classes for our community here in the Omaha area. And so every Monday they have a young women's group. And so this is for our young ladies, 10, 11, on up to 20. And so once again, you know, Nikki asked the girls, what is the name of your group? And so they came up with the Sacred Sisters. We need to give that opportunity to the next generation and to see what their thoughts are. And so the young ladies are the ones that called it the Sacred Sisters. And so one thing about all of our classes is it doesn't cost a dime. And so we find the ways and means of sewing machines, of materials, of beads, of porcupine quills. And so we make regalia, we make ribbon skirts, we make the moccasins, we make complete outfits for regalia for contemporary powwows today. But we are also part of the rituals, of the ceremonies of our young. Every springtime, we have a very special ceremony that we call Ishinate Awachi Lowampi. And this is the time that the girls sing alone because it's a rite of passage of this transformation into that next stage of life for our young ladies. And they're preparing them for womanhood. Every Tuesday night, this is my grandson took over that evening session in which he's teaching any and all males who want to learn our songs to be a part of that drum group. And then every Wednesday, he opened it up to all of our youth in the Omaha area. And so what's really cool about my grandsons, they are Umaha and Lakota. So they sing Northern and Southern style. My grandson, he has helpers all across the state of Nebraska because there's not one person that speaks all these different languages. And so he calls upon Andre Sansasi who is the language instructor for Nebraska Indian Community College up on the Umaha Macy Reservation. But he also calls upon Red Wing Thomas, who is the cultural specialist, cultural bearer for the village of Santee, E. Santee, Medea Wakantawa people of Santee, Nebraska. And so now they're incorporating Lakota, Dakota, and Umaha songs into their teachings. Every Thursday is when I come in and I'm helping that next generation of our young men understand our young men's societies and the paraphernalia that exists with each societies, but not only to explain, but to showcase 
of construction, of technique. And so even there, because, you know, there are restrictions still placed upon indigenous people that were created by the United States government of possession of very specific birds of prey feathers. We have to fill out applications. It takes us up to from four to eight years to receive a carcass of the birds of prey, of the hawks, of the eagles. Something has to happen to that bird of prey, and then we are gifted the carcass if our application is accepted. And then we show the next generation how to dissect and make our regalia, make our bustles, make our headdresses. Every other Thursday is what I'm doing with the young men because on the off Thursdays, I am working with Gary Shaw. I'm working with, pretty soon, Alex Fire Thunder. I'm going to call upon Wendell Birdhead. I'm going to call upon Frank Bear Killer. And we're going to teach and have a Lakota language class free of charge for the Omaha community. And so once again, this is about preservation of our cultural ways of teaching. As soon as they complete the kitchen in Yates Illuminates, we're going to have culinary classes for our relatives, and we're going to show them how to dry out, how to cook, what to cook, what season do you harvest, what season do you forage, our specific plants that we have been doing for, once again, and so that's the importance of our classes And so I think we are going to be opening up a Super Saturday in which we'll be there for eight hours and just working on regalia, moccasins, clothing, beadwork, you name it. It's going to be an amazing journey. You've talked a lot about identity, who you are, who you feel you belong to and are becoming. You've traveled a long way in your life. Do you feel a complete sense of identity? Have you a feeling of harmony about all those strands that make up who you are as a person? It's taken me a long time to find my own inner peace. I am very much in tune to who I am culturally as a Mexicano, as a Lakota in today's world. And so one thing about most of my kids is they follow this way of life. But once again, it's about choices. And so Nicole is the older twin who is my Lakota, first and foremost, because the younger twin, Rebecca, is my Mexicano, who's fluent in Spanish, but now has evolved and understands the importance of both cultures. So we are becoming more well-rounded within our own self ways of being. And so now is the time and the change that we can, you know, incorporate and teach that next generation. And so once again, you know, this started out as a journey to find my own inner peace, to find my own peace first and foremost, to gift it to my little ones and to introduce by choice once again This is the path that you can follow. One of my daughters, you know, Antonia, is one of my practitioners of our ceremonial ritual ways. And so that's a beautiful thing within itself. 
one of my other daughters, Avelina, is an amazing hand gamer who understands and was gifted that very special gift of her voice. And, and she makes and creates CDs as well as cultural workshops pertaining to our traditional games. And then here comes my youngest, Liliana. And so one thing about Lily is, you know, she pursued a, a higher educational degree as a social worker because of her compassion for all living beings. And so that led her down that path to help coordinate all youth activities within the Boys and Girls Club here in Omaha. And so there's tomatoes everywhere you go because of my daughters, because of my sons, you know, they are amazing at whatever they have chosen to and how to live. Most of them have brought their children, my grandkids up in this way of this manner. And so now we have three, three generations strong who are in tune culturally because once again, of the atrocities committed against my mother, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, and for many ancestors. 1978 wasn't long ago. And one thing I incorporate and teach is about the different phases bestowed upon us by the United States government of almost making that buffalo extinct, of creating very specific POW camps called reservations once they created the reservations, they targeted all of our spiritual leaders. The next phase was to steal all the children and then pass, create, make policies and acts to assimilate. And so when you look up the definition of genocide, you will see the policies carried out against the indigenous people. But what I have always wanted to incorporate was the resiliency of the people and the resistance because we had to go underground. We had to keep our way of life alive secretly. There isn't very many Lakota speakers left. There isn't very many Umaha speakers left. And so this is what we're trying to change for the betterment of our own people. To strengthen our own community is first and foremost, but we had to strengthen and help our own family within before you can even reach out. So that's what's important about all of that. You have used a lot the word gift or sichun. It seems that you have in your life discovered and really dove into your sichun. Do you feel as if you are living your gift, you're really expressing and using your gift to make the world better? In this day and age, I'm using the English language that was forced upon us to help reinforce. But once again, I had to learn how to articulate. I had to learn how to write. I had to learn how to document, how to research. And so as the cultural specialist for Omaha Public School District, I have access to 80 plus schools. I have access to almost 7,000 teachers. And so what I do as the cultural specialist for OPS is I create very specific lesson plans and curriculum pertaining to an indigenous way of being. However, I can help any nation. What I have created 
with a team of educators is actually the template of our ways of being. And so all you have to do is understand who you are, use my lesson plans, incorporate your own creation stories as indigenous people. And when I talk about indigenous people, we are focusing on Native American, indigenous people of Turtle Island specifically. But think about all the indigenous people in present-day Mexico of South America. Think about all the indigenous people in Africa. And so whenever I am in a room full of educators, I often bring up, listen to how people speak English because it will tell you where they're from, actually. And so that's what's beautiful about language. Our songs, our ways of being, one thing about our existence is the hidden messages in our ways of being, and that is across the board for all two-legged relatives. Look at the art form. Look at the hidden messages, because there is hidden messages in our songs and in our art, and that's what I love about art. My guest today has been artist and Native American cultural educator Steve Tamayo. Steve, thank you so much for sitting with me today and talking and sharing so much about your history and your culture. Thank you. Oh, the last thing I have to share is, you know, for all Native people, there are certain words that don't exist in our languages, like animal. Animal explains the hierarchy that exists that we are better or above certain relatives. We identify them as very specific nations. The Wambli Oyate, the Buffalo Nation, Tatanka Oyate, the Buffalo Nation, the, the Eagle Nation. And so to add to that, goodbye doesn't exist in our language either. We say and this is and means till we meet again. So Tokshake. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.